Hey, I'm Michael Wood, lead pastor at First West. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here in just a second, we're gonna dive into God's word and to see what it says about who he is, about who we are, and about the hope that can be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that today God's word will encourage you, it'll challenge you, and it'll allow you to see that no matter where we find ourselves, there's always hope because of Jesus Christ. So let's dig in and see what God has for us today in his word. October 23rd of 1844, Henry Emmons experienced the greatest disappointment of his life. As an ardent follower of a preacher by the name of William Miller, he was convinced that Jesus was going to return somewhere between October 22nd of 1843 and October 22nd of 1844. But on the 23rd of October, after realizing that the skies didn't open and the trumpet didn't sound, Emmons wrote this. I waited all day on Tuesday, the 22nd, and dear Jesus did not come. I waited all morning of Wednesday, and as well in body as I ever was, but afternoon, after 12 o'clock, I began to feel faint. And before dark, I needed someone to help me to my room as my natural strength was leaving me very, very fast. And I lay flat on the ground for two days. Two days without any pain, but sick with disappointment. For centuries, people have experienced the incredible disappointment as their specific expectation of when Jesus' imminent return was going to take place, only to find that it was unfulfilled. In fact, if you go to Amazon right now, you can purchase a book, I think for a very good price, which is titled, 88 Reasons the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. <laughs> I hope that book wasn't right. <laughs> there's no doubt when we think about the return of jesus for some it is a fascination and for some it is a strong following for them on all things that have to do with the end of times and so we're going to dive into it over the next seven weeks we're going to jump into this series called Last Day's Q&A, where we're going to answer common questions that people have about the end times. And today we're going to jump right into it, answering the question, are we in the end times? Now I want to give some important ground rules for us, or guidelines, as we jump in, not just to today, but as we jump into this entire series. Some foundational points that are helpful for us. Number one is this is that I believe that Scripture points to the reality that Jesus will return. There's a day that is coming when Jesus will return to this earth. You look at John chapter 14, where Jesus told the disciples not to be troubled, right? And he says there that I go to prepare a place for you, and if I prepare a place, I will come again, and I will take you to myself. We see again in Acts chapter 1, that Jesus' ascension, he is... He has died, he was buried, he was resurrected, he had walked on earth and made appearances to 
uh, many, many people, but then came the moment for his ascension when he returned to the right hand of the Father. And it tells us there that he ascended up into the heavens and, and some angels show up on the scene and they ask the disciples, what are you looking for? What are you looking at? It's almost a humorous moment as you see these disciples just looking up at the sky and mouths wide open. They answer, what are you doing, right? And the angel instructed them, said, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you had seen him going into heaven. What does that mean in the same way? Well, it means visibly, and I think it means physically, bodily, that Jesus is going to return. Second foundational point for us is this, is that the Bible doesn't tell us everything about the end, but it does tell us some things about the end. We take a look at Scripture, we see in the Old Testament books like Ezekiel and Daniel. We see portions of Isaiah. We see even in the minor prophets. Y'all may remember, we've covered those over the last couple of years. The minor prophets, they speak of this day of the Lord that is coming. We move to the New Testament and the Gospels. We see as we're going to find today in Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus is going to be asked a question about the end times. What's going to take place? And Jesus will speak to it. Then we move into the writings of the New Testament, and we find uh, books like First and Second Thessalonians, and then ultimately in Revelation, where we have the most detailed account of what's going to take place. So we know that Scripture does speak of these things, but hear me clearly, it doesn't speak of everything. Some of you, you may have seen on TV before a preacher who gets up and with a screen like this behind me has a chart of how it's all going to happen. And it's a nice chart that they make, but I want you to understand clearly, the Bible doesn't have a chart. There is no chart in Scripture. And even for the things that are spoken about the end times, it is a genre of Scripture that is very different than a narrative, say a story or the law, instruction. It's what's called apocalyptic language. It just can be very hard to understand. And so with that reality, the third foundational point for us today is this, is that a healthy perspective on the study of the end times is to be encouraged, but it's not to be obsessed over. All right, so a, a healthy study, it should be encouraged. We, we need to think about the end times. We need to challenge ourselves to do our very best to understand what it's going to look like and what are the ramifications are going to be of how this is all going to lay out. But at the same time, I think it's very healthy for us, unhealthy for us, to obsess over it. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. John writes this. He says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, in it because the time is near. So he's saying, blessed is the one who studies these things, who hears them, who thinks about these things. So we're encouraged. We need to think about end-time issues. But at the same time, and some of you, you've heard the preacher, you've seen the YouTube video, you have that friend, and it just wears you out. In fact, I saw about six months ago, not, no, that's not true, a couple of months ago, I had a video that I watched on YouTube, obviously it's all true, um, <laughs> there was a guy speaking about um, the invasion into Israel, and all that's taken place and unfolded there, and and he was trying to connect it to the end times and this mystery that was being revealed. And he said, if you look at 
the one-year Bible of the New Living Translation, the scripture verse that was used on the day that the invasion took place in Israel, if you look at that verse and then connect it with the verse from September 11th, which is an important date, and you look at those verses, you can see that it is this revealing that has taken place. And i got to be honest with you, my initial thought was, come on, bro. Why the New Living Translation? Why not the NIV Translation? What does it say on those days? Or the King James Version, right? We could go on and on. I think it's important for us to not obsess over it. Understand that there are godly men and there are scholars that I would quickly have to be right here in my place preaching to you that hold differing understandings or positions on what's going to happen in the end. Some of these men, probably most of them, have changed their position as the years have gone by. In fact, I was telling someone that a guy by the name of Dr. Tom Schreiner, he's a professor of New Testament at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I believe he is the leading scholar when it comes to the New Testament. Dr. Schreiner has uh, acknowledged that he's held four different positions in his lifetime, all of those being able to support them biblically. What does that mean? It means that you need to be very leery of the person or the preacher who tries to convince you that they have this completely figured out and exhibits little to no humility in their approach to the end times. I can promise you I'm not going to do that. I don't have it all figured out. Listen, when it comes to our salvation, that it is by grace through faith, that it is through the repentance of sin and trusting in Jesus' finished work on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, I will die on that hill every single day. But whether you're premillennial or postmillennial or amillennial or new creation millennial or post-trib, mid-trib, pre-trib, mick-rib, right? <laughs> we don't know. I reserve the right to be wrong on this issue, but hear me, I'm going to do my very, very best to help shepherd us through understanding these important questions. Deal? It's good. So let's jump right in. Matthew chapter 24. Are we in the end times? Yes, we are. And no, we're not. Let's pray together. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yes, we are, and no, we're not. When we look at the New Testament, it is clear to me that the New Testament writers had an understanding that they were living in the last days. They were in the end times. In fact, just some scriptural support of that in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26 the author of Hebrews says, speaking of Jesus, otherwise he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in 
God. So without question, we, we see here from these right, and I've just given you a small portion here for time's sake. Uh, we're not going to look at everything else we could, but, but there was a clear understanding for, for the New Testament writers that they were in the last times. They were living in the last days. Well, why would I say, no, we're not? Because some of you, maybe many of you in here, are familiar that there are some things in the Bible that are spoken of that don't seem to have unfolded yet. Now, there are some who would take a position that in A.D. chapter 70 was the destruction of the temple. It was the conquering of, of Jerusalem by the Romans. There are some that would believe that at that moment, everything in Scripture was fulfilled when it comes to the end. I don't land in that camp. Honestly, there are very few that do, but there are some that would say that anything we see in Scripture, all of it has been fulfilled at this point. I think there's some major issues there. And so we look to Scripture, and we see some things that we're going to be talking about over the next, uh, next six, seven weeks that we're going to cover that have yet to unfold. So why would I say that, yes, we are, but no, we're not? Well, this comes to an understanding, I believe, of the kingdom of God. And to understand, I need you to put your thinking caps on here, hang with me, that the kingdom of God is, in a sense, already, but not yet. You see, the Old Testament writers, their understanding, the prophets, was that when the day of the Lord came, it was going to come as a victorious arrival, and, and God was going to make everything right. But they didn't understand, as Isaiah spoke about a suffering servant, I don't know that they fully grasped that, that the Messiah would come, but he would come twice. That first he would come in humility. So fitting for us to jump into this right after the small town Christmas series to think about him coming to Bethlehem. But that he would come in humility and when Jesus came, he was clear that the kingdom of God had come. I believe it's in the gospel of Mark. The very first thing you see Jesus saying is, repent for the kingdom of God is near. It's here. In Matthew chapter 20, that's the story of where the friends lower their friend down to Jesus who is paralyzed. And the Pharisees are there watching Jesus. And if you remember, it's such a great moment where, where Jesus tells the man to get up and, or that his sins are forgiven. The Pharisees, they can't believe it. Who is this man who thinks that he can say that your sins are forgiven? They understood that Jesus was claiming divinity in that moment. And Jesus said, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin, what's easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to get up and walk? And so that you know that I do have that authority, he says to the man, get up and walk. And he tells them there in Matthew chapter 12, he makes it clear that the kingdom of God is in their midst. It is here. So in a sense, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. It has, it has begun. But the kingdom of God has yet to be fully consummated. And that day will come when the skies open up and Christ returns in all of his glory. So yes, it has come. And yes, we are in the end times. But no, it's not. And it's yet to come. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that reality that if we are living in the last days, but the end times have not yet come, what do we do from this day moving forward? What do we look for? What do we watch for? What, do, what, what should we be doing if that is the reality for us when it comes to Christ's return? I'm glad you asked. Matthew chapter 24, we're going to see a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. 
As we navigate this text today, the main idea, if you're taking notes, is this. Ready or not, here he comes. Ready or not, here he comes. And Jesus is going to help us, I believe, see today in Matthew chapter 24, things that we can look for, for that reality that he is coming again. I want to invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's word. We read chapter 24, verse 1 through 8. It says, as Jesus left and was going out of the temple, his disciples came up and called his attention to its buildings. And he replied to them, do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. And while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus replied to them, Watch out, that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars, and see that you are not alarmed, because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation, the kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these events are the beginning of labor pains. Let's pray together. Jesus, we recognize today that we are way in over our heads. And Lord, our desire today is, is to grasp your word and to grasp as firm of understanding as we possibly can to, to what you want to teach us, what you want to show us, Lord. That we would be living as you're going to call us to live in this text in these days. And so, Holy Spirit, would you illuminate your word? Would you give us understanding? Would you lead us to truth? And would you help us to understand what to, know, uh, what to do with it? Speak to us, we're listening. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. Beginning of chapter 24, we see that Jesus is walking out of the temple. What's interesting is that Matthew records, beginning in chapter 21, that Jesus has been in the temple teaching. And at the end of chapter 23, we see this lament for Jerusalem. And this is the last time that we see Jesus in the temple. So he's walking out of the temple for the very last time. And as he's walking out, we see that he turns to the disciples and he says to them, as they've called attention to the beauty and the majesty of the temple, it was significant. Historians would say if you hadn't seen the temple, you had not seen a beautiful building. And Jesus makes an incredibly shocking statement to them. All of these stones, all of them, will be torn down. This was shocking, not just because a building would fall, but to understand that the temple itself had become the great Jewish hope. It, it symbolized God's exclusive love for the Jewish people in their minds. And Jesus says it's all coming down. Jesus was right. As I mentioned earlier, in 70 AD, the Roman army shows up and destroys Jerusalem, destroys the army, destroys the temple. 
So much so that Josephus, who was an ancient historian, made the statement that it was destroyed to the point so completely that one could plow the ground on Mount Moriah. Utter destruction. And so we find this moment as they're walking out, and Jesus makes this shocking statement. It makes sense for us that it's still rolling around in the minds of the disciples. What does he mean by that? And so we find in verse 3 where they're sitting at a very important place. It's important for the immediate context of this conversation because they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, which is to the east of the temple across the Kidron Valley. So they're sitting on the east side of the Mount of Olives, and they can see the temple. Their minds are still racing about what he said. They're looking at the temple, but it's also significant because in Zechariah chapter 14, 4, it tells us that when Jesus returns, his foot is going to step down on that mountain and that it will split that mountain from east to west. Jesus is talking and he's thinking about that day when his foot is going to step on that place again. And I think what's important for us is we try to best understand Matthew chapter 24 and what's being communicated here. It's to to get into, to try the best we can to understand what the disciples are thinking when they're asking him these things. If you notice here, the question that they ask Jesus is threefold. It could be in verse 3. Tell us, when will these things happen? What is these things? The destruction of the temple, right? When will these things happen? What is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Three questions they're asking here. Here's why I think that's important, because I believe for the disciples, they believe that all three of these things are going to happen at the exact same time. That they can't envision a world in which the temple is no longer here. And so as they ask these questions, they they ask, and this is an important word for us to understand, about your coming. The word there is parousia, which literally means your presence, but it's used to speak of Jesus coming and his return in glory. It's often used to speak of official visits by a high-ranking official or a king and of divine visitations. What's interesting is that that word is only used here, only in this chapter in the four Gospels. And Matthew's going to use it, he's going to record Jesus saying it four different times. So you have the disciples who believe that this is all one instance, that, that his coming, the destruction of the temple, the sign of his coming, all of it's going to happen at one time. That's what they believe. It's all happening at once. But I believe Jesus understands and knows that's not the case. So this is one of the things that makes interpretation tough for us, and why we have to approach it with humility, and why I say I reserve the right to be wrong. Because the disciples are thinking one thing, this is all going to happen at once, and now you have Jesus who understands that's not the case. But when we look at Matthew chapter 24, what we don't find is that Jesus answering with a threefold response. When it comes to the destruction of the temple, this. When it comes to the sign of my coming, this. When it comes to the end of the ages, this. No, he just says it. So it's hard for us to understand when is he talking about, specifically talking about the temple? When is he talking about the sign of his coming? When is he talking about the end of the age? That's where we have to do the interpretive work to the best of our ability. Let's jump in and see what he says. I want to show you four quick things here. And then tell you why it matters for us. Four quick things that Jesus says here about the end of the age. The first one is we look to the end of the age, the end times. It's to be looking for substantial signs. Substantial signs. He mentions here in the text, 
several things to be looking for. False messiahs, who he says will deceive. They will come in my name. Wars and rumors of wars. He speaks here of international conflict, kingdom rising against kingdom, nation against nation, famines and earthquakes. Now you, be th- you may be thinking, well, Michael, gosh, that just sounds like the nightly news, doesn't it? Like, like, yes, we must be in the end times because you just described what's happening in our world today. And you are right. The, these things that he just mentioned, they, they are a common occurrence in our world. But, but let's not be so ignorant or choose to be ignorant not to understand that these things have been happening century after century after century after century. They've always had a common occurrence in our world. So what do we, what do, we do with that? What, what is Jesus attempting to do here? What's he trying to say here in response to this question by mentioning these things that have always been happening? Well, I think a key for us is verse 6 and verse 8. Look with me in verse 6 and verse 8. Verse 6, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, because these things must take place. Here's an important phrase, but the end is not yet. Verse 8, all these events are the beginning of labor pains. What's Jesus saying here? I think what Jesus is trying to communicate to the disciples in this moment is that his return is not necessarily imminent, but it is coming. Right For them, in their mindset, this is all going to happen at one time. Destruction of the temple, sign of the, his coming, end of the age. And I think what Jesus is saying here is, Listen, his return is near, but it's not necessarily imminent because these things are unfolding. And I think that's why he says here that the end is not yet when these things happen. And these things are the beginning of labor pains. And if you understand how that birthing process goes, the baby doesn't come at the beginning of the labor pains, does it? My mind was blown with when Abby went into labor with one of our kids. And I remember her making the statement of, I think we're just going to stay at the house, and I'm going to labor here for a little bit. I'm thinking, what? (laughs) Like, now's my time to go 90 miles an hour down Arkansas, right, to get to the hospital. You're in labor. We got to go. But she understood, no. Beginning of later, we had time, and praise Jesus, we got to the hospital on time. But he says here, these things are the beginning. Here's where I think this is important for us. We have to live in the tension that that the occurrences that take place in a fallen world, even in creation, we see that from Romans chapter 8, how creation itself is groaning. That the occurrences that take place in a fallen world shouldn't cause us to believe that every significant story on the news is the tipping point. But at the same time, all these things that are happening should be a constant reminder that there is a coming. That Jesus is going to return. His arrival should be anticipated. It's for us to understand that we are right on course. Look at me down in verse 32 through 35. I want to catch this real quick because some of you would have questions about it. In this realm, in this idea, this understanding, he says, learn the lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, I think he's speaking of the things we've just talked about, recognize that he is near. He's at the door. 
Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So you see, you're saying all these things, man, I'm near, like my coming, it is on schedule, it's going to happen. But what about verse 33? Verse 33 is one of the most challenging verses in all of the Bible. In fact, for some people, that verse has caused them to abandon their faith. Because they say Jesus got it wrong. He said all these things, and he spoke about his coming before this, and clearly that hadn't happened yet. So Jesus didn't know he was wrong or he lied. And so this whole Bible thing is, and it's for the birds. Some people look at that passage, and again, they want to point to everything that unfolded in AD 70. I would not land in that camp for sure. Some want to point to when he says generation here, he's simply talking about the Jewish race, that the Jewish race will continue. Some want to talk about the idea that Jesus would speak of in another place where he's talking about a stiff-necked generation, referring to, to, their, to the people, and that idea of being stiff-necked and objectionable. Do we have some stiff-necked and objectionable people that are still around today? And look at the person next to you. It might be them, right? <laughs> I think what verse 33 is referring to is that these things that he has just referred to. He's telling the disciples that these things that I've mentioned, those things are going to take place before this generation falls asleep, before they pass on. And so significant signs. There are significant signs that we see, and when that's those signs, the fallenness in which we live, let it just remind you that he's coming again. Second one is this, and we're going to speed up here a little bit, but second one is this, significant persecution. Significant persecution, verse 9 through 13. Then they will hand you over to be persecuted, and they will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, because lawlessness will multiply. The love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. In Jewish eschatology, they believed that there would be an intensifying evil that would take place in the world prior to the day of the Lord. But what Jesus clarifies here is this, is that for his followers, there will be a specific persecution that will take place simply for the fact that they claim the name of Jesus. He says there, many will fall away, betray one another, but love will grow cold. Interesting, as you look at verse 9 there, when it says, they will hand you over. Who is they referring to? It doesn't tell us in Matthew's passage here who the they is, who's going to hand believers over. If you go to Luke 21 and Mark 13, we get some more clarity on that, where this is interesting that not only does it speak to governments that will do that, but even religious institutions will do that. So you see the deception that will come. And you see the persecution. And then if you go down to verse 15 through 28, we're not going to cover this in depth because we're going to do that in the weeks ahead. But you see if it's speaking of this season of tribulation. I believe it's a seven-year season that will take place. And let me be clear. For those of you that have convinced yourself that we're in the tribulation because someone wrote something not nice on Facebook, it's a very unhealthy perspective to have. In many ways, I think you could say, no, we're not in that tribulation period yet. At the same time, if you go across the globe, 
You talk to some of our brothers and sisters in Christ that when they wake up in the morning, they don't know if they're going to be alive at the end of the day simply because they have placed their faith and trust in Jesus. They've been disowned from their family. Brothers and sisters have lost their life due to their faith. Been put in jail. They might be very tempted at this moment to say, absolutely, we are in the period of tribulation. I think it becomes very arrogant in the culture in which we live to say, no, we're not. But Jesus says there is a period of great tribulation, a seven-year period that will precede the return of Christ. Again, we're going to get more into that in the weeks ahead. Next one is this, gospel saturation, verse 14. Jesus says, this good news of the kingdom, the message of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sin, that Christ has come to save the world from their sin, that it will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations. Notice what it says, and then the end will come. This gospel will go forth. It's why a Missions 101 class is so important. It's why our faithful sacrificial giving to be able to send money to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering to help thousands of missionaries that are on the mission field all over the globe. That's why for us, we've entered into this new partnership in East Asia where we're working with local missionaries. Hear this, to start a church among a people who right now have no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this idea that the gospel will go forward to all nations, I can tell you right now, there's a group in East Asia that doesn't have the gospel. First West, we're helping the gospel get to that place. It should create an urgency in us, a boldness in us to get the gospel to the nations. And notice how definitive it is, right? Remember in 1 through 8, he said, right, the end is not, don't be alarmed, the end will not come. Right? These are the beginning of birth pains, but if you look at verse 14, look how definitive that he is here. He says, this will happen, what? And then the end will come. So let's take him at his word. Last thing is this, is a shaking of the world's stability. A shaking of the world's stability. In Matthew chapter 24, look with me down in verse 29 through 31. Immediately after the distress of those days, that's the tribulation period, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not shed its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Real quick, some believe, for centuries, believe that that would be a cross. There would be a cross in the sky. There's some that still hold to that. Uh, I think the sign there is simply that it will be him, his coming. That is the sign. We will see his return, right? Um, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Whew. That's loaded, isn't it? Some people want to take this passage as a literal um, reality of what's going to happen when he returns. The sun's going to be darkened, the moon will not shed its light, the stars are going to fall from the sky. Personally, I think what is Jesus is speaking of here, I think he's speaking figuratively. And the reason I think that, just in studying and reading scholars and commentaries, is, is that what you see Jesus say here in verse 29 is almost a direct repetition of Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10. In Isaiah 13, 10, we see that there is, um, 
the Lord talking about the destruction that's going to come on Babylon and all that's going to take place as he punishes Babylon. And he uses almost this exact phrase. And I think what he's getting to is that it is going to be an earth-shaking moment. Alistair Begg, who's a pastor in, I believe, in Ohio, and for those that know him, man, I wish I had his accent. Uh, He's Scottish, by the way. Uh, He says, listen to what he says here about this passage. He says, what you have in this picture is a a depiction of the aspect of life that are normally routine and things in life that are apparently stable and being disrupted. It is a picture of a cosmic shaking of all that represents stability in the world. Here's what that means. When Jesus came the first time, there were some shepherds that knew. When he comes the second time, every single person, the world will know. Everything will be disrupted because Jesus has returned in glory to make all things right. So, are we on the cusp of this happening? I don't know. And I say I don't know very, very confidently because if you look down in verse 36, Jesus makes it clear he doesn't know. Now concerning the day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father alone. But hear me, that does not negate our responsibility to wait expectantly. And if you hold to a position of a a rapture of the church, we're going to talk about that in the weeks ahead. We see in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this understanding that Jesus' return is going to be a twofold return. The first return, he's going to come and snatch up the church, the saints, right? The twinkling of an eye, right? We'll meet him in the sky, right? If we hold to that, there's nothing that we're waiting on for that to happen, that could happen at any moment. And so the question is, what do we do? Ready or not, here he comes. We be alert. We be ready. We see it in verse 42 through 44. In light of all of this that that can be hard for us to understand, it's not hard to understand what he says in verse 42. Therefore, in light of all of this, what? Be alert that you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the homeowner had known one time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. Are you ready for his coming? Well, that day when he returns, if you're here for it, will it be a day of rejoicing because you're in right standing with him? 2 Peter chapter 3, it says, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand it, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and on that day the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works will be disclosed. The Lord is being patient. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, the Lord in his grace towards you is being patient on his return and giving you an opportunity that today would be the day of salvation for you. Be ready, be expectant. As a part of that being ready is to be righteous. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, 
and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When Jesus returns, I hope that he finds me faithful and that he finds you faithful. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, We hope, again, that you were uh, encouraged by what God had to say for you and for your life. I just want to extend an invitation for you today. Maybe today you realize that you need Jesus in your life. Maybe today you just need to take that next step in your spiritual walk, or maybe you've got a spiritual need. And I want you to know that we would love to come alongside you and serve you any way that we can. Feel free to reach out to us at firstwest.cc, or you can call the church, 318-322-5104. And we would love to help you in what God is doing in your life. Have a great day.